0: Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Dr. Chad Carlson, PhD, professor of kinesiology, and director of general education at Hope College. We talk about faith, philosophy, education, and sport. Thanks for listening. Solidarity forever. Thank you. of kinesiology and the director of general education at hope college welcome to the podcast sir
1: oh so great to be here thanks for having me
0: so why don't we why don't we get right into it what's what's education all about I actually had a doctor of education on two weeks ago we had a nice discussion so part two education on necessary illusions what's education what's it all about
1: well, that's a, such a big question. and And, as uh, faculty members, we love answering big questions. We love asking big questions. and I'm not sure that you would get necessarily one particular answer, but you know we're talking about higher education here, and it's interesting to think about the fact that uh, trust in higher education is really at an all-time low in terms of um, uh, the public believing in in what what happens on colleges and university campuses across the country. And so, you know we're 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 trying to, I think, have conversations that, that get at the heart of what it is that's meaningful about what we do here. And, you know, those aren't easy cam- conversations to have, but they're necessary to have recently, for sure.
0: Why do you think there's been a, a problem? Why do you think that trust in colleges, universities, and even public institutions is, is down? I actually did a podcast talking about Congress, which frequently – um Flirts with single digits. It's in the teens, I believe, now. And the Supreme Court, about two months ago, after Roe v. Wade, and then after the student loan debacle, um, where they struck down the Biden plan, uh, it actually reached an all-time low. So what's going on with public institutions, um, higher learning institutions, and, um, you know, institutions that are democratically, at least, um, organized in theory, like the Supreme Court and Congress? We live in a democracy, and yet... Um, there's very low approval rating for our uh, again public institutions in this country.
1: Yeah, we're certainly not alone in being in having low confidence from the public, right? I mean, as you said, there's a number of of public entities that that there just isn't a whole lot of trust from the the population in right now. And so, you know, we're coming through an age where I think uh, there's just a lot of scrutiny and criticism of a lot of different things. And so, uh, we, we're not a, we're not immune from that. I think one of the major issues, though, in terms of the lack of trust in higher education right now is is the funding and the rising costs, right? So um, in, in just one generation, uh, most colleges and universities across the campus have more than doubled in cost. And so this, this, uh, this trend is not sustainable. You know, we're asking students and their families to, to make an investment in their future. And sometimes that investment puts them so far into the hole that they spend most of their their careers trying to dig out of it. And so we're, we're trying to we're trying to have conversations about what that looks like, at least on my campus. We are and I think a number is a number of others as well. It, it, this just isn't sustainable it's economic model of higher education. So I, I certainly sympathize with with those who have lost trust in in higher education, not necessarily because of the product that that, that we're able to to offer. Uh, that is, um, you know, the learning model, the, the model of education moving forward. I think that's that's stable. I think that's good. I think we're doing good things. but. Uh, the difficulty is really in the economics of it all. How, are we, how, can, we, how can we continue to ask families and, and students to, uh, to, to climb further and further into debt while at college and, and expect that they're going to believe in, in this institution as something that helps them to move upward you know, mobility-wise in, in the socioeconomic uh, conditions?
0: So um, in, I guess, the 1950s, after World War II, there was a, a big public initiative, um, the GI Bill, public education across the country, making it more affordable, not just for elites, but everybody, especially those returning back um, from the war. And uh, ever since then, there's kind of been, uh, it's been defunded, and more and more of the burden was put on uh, American students and their families, uh, and there's a huge, um, you know, a uh, just increase over the, especially the last um, 20 or 30 years. And you had mentioned they had doubled. There's a lot of countries around the world that offer free education and many more that offer nearly free uh, education, especially many of those in the European union. Um, why do you think that it's become so expensive in America? Is this is just a public policy issue. Uh, and you know, what kinds of things can be done um, you know to kind of change that and to try to make it more affordable for everyone not just you know people that are economically um, you know privileged uh, I think at least one of the trends that I've seen is there have been you know taxes have been uh, cut. Uh, with with corporations, I think it's at or near all time lows for corporate um, tax rates. And then I also just read here the average American, I think this was yesterday or two days ago on inequality.org, the average American pays something like 13% uh, tax rate, give or take. And I think billionaires are paying like 8%. So you're saying, so we're saying here that essentially billionaires have a lower tax burden um, than the average American. So I think that. At least that's where I see it. Um, used to be, public education was um, publicly funded, and a small percentage of university funding was from tuition. But that that's not been reversed, at least the way that I've seen it. Uh, more of the more of the burden is from tuition, and less public funding from the states and the
1: federal government. You're definitely right with that, and I think there's there's a real irony here that when we when we saw the uh, the GI Bill come around after, after World War II and, and sort of the, the de-elitization of, of higher education, right, where it became more accessible to more Americans. We also saw, you know, throughout that period of time and the decades that followed, more of a privatization model as well, where there's less and less funding coming from the states that originally were, were the, the major benefactors for the public institutions, at least within their states. And so the funding has become much more privatized. Uh, states are, are offering less and less to their public institutions. And so the, the burden has to fall somewhere, right? And the difficulty is that you, you match sort of that uh, uh, lessening of public funding towards higher education institutions. You couple that with um, kind of the, the arms race that, that colleges and universities are, find themselves in. You know, you, you have to build nicer buildings. You have to offer better amenities. You have to have better classrooms. You have to have better food service. You know better food in the cafeteria. you've got to have nicer dormitories. you've got to have uh, a lower and lower student to faculty ratio, all of these things that continue to cost more and more money to colleges and universities uh, they're they're passing that along to to the student through tuition. and so the the funding model has has changed uh, over the last you know seventy years really and and that comes along with it that's that's the irony here is that we have. Uh, you know, the implementation of the GI Bill that, that provides more access to more mm-hmm. Americans to be able to go to college. But as that happens, we also see sort of the, the privatization model and, and the lack of the lessening of public funding that makes it more difficult because costs then increase, making it, making it more difficult for the average American to be able to attend uh, college, at least without, without uh, accruing a whole lot of debt. So we see a couple of things going on there that I think have made it really difficult. There are certainly some states that that continue to offer um incentives for you know, for the the students that come from within their borders to attend and so in-state tuition is still something that reduces the cost a little bit at public schools uh, not enough certainly but uh, enough to to make it competitive and and certain states that offer um you know, guaranteed access to, to the public education, in their schools, if it can be paid for in some way or another. So there's still ways that states are trying to do it the best they can. But over time, state governments have given less and less to, to, to the higher education schools within their borders. And that's that's been problematic. And then um, the, the, the arms race, like I said, I mean, it's, it's amazing the amenities that we're offering. And, and that's really the way to recruit students. Right. So no one wants to go to um, a college just to study anymore. Right. That was originally the model. But at this point in time, students want to go for the experience. And the experience includes having nice buildings, being in a nice location, uh, being a safe campus, which which also requires more money and and offering great amenities. So there's a number of things that have worked towards making this model uh, so unsustainable. And it's just it's difficult to tell what's going to happen moving forward. And I'm looking here
0: on the the list here. I've looked up uh, a couple of different uh, agencies. It looks like you know American students pay the highest tuition of anywhere else in the world. Uh, Germany has really good institutions, some of the best in the world. Students are able to go there for zero dollars, dollars, so it's free. Estonia free, Denmark free. Um, so a lot of countries are able to offer it. I mean, many of them in the European Union. Norway free, New Zealand free. Um, just kind of looking through here, some of these like nearly free. Um, looking at uh, Switzerland, uh, that's free. Turkey, nearly free. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering, <laughs> I guess, uh, what, what can be done? Is it is it just a, is it is it at the state level, level? Is it at the federal level? Um, is there uh, an increased, uh, I guess, cost in, I guess there's a lot of bureaucracy. I talked to some pr- professors when I was in school, um, did graduate school as well, and he had kind of complained. I remember talking about the curriculum changes, and he had to go through like seven layers of management to get kind of get something changed. Um, he definitely had come from the private sector, um, and you know, the, uh, you know, not that they're <laughs> not that not that hospital systems or insurance companies are out without levels of bureaucracy, but he said that you know. Com- Comparing the private sector to public institutions, which is where he was teaching and where I went to school, again, a lot of different layers of management, hierarchy, bureaucracy to kind of even get small changes to the curriculum. So what about, um, you know, that kind of um, – what was the word for where institutions tend to get kind of bigger over time? But these institutions – um, you know, tend to tend to get bigger over time, you know, administration, um, you know, I guess the red tape with, you know, getting uh, things uh, approval with uh, all, all different sorts of regulations from the state and federal level. So what about, um, you know, the, the need for all these different layers of management, bureaucracy, and these are you know positions that don't directly teach or interact with students. So what about you know coming from? As, I guess you're a, a, um, a director of education, right? So you're you're more in the leadership role. Can you talk about your experience and kind of what you see and kind of what what role you have um, as a as a director of general education? Is this kind of the stuff that you were um, you know ex- experienced in your role as well?
1: Yeah, we definitely worry about about like administrative or bureaucratic bloating uh, yeah. on campuses, yeah. right? And I think. You know we're certainly not immune to that at my institution here um yeah i'm, I'm a part of that so so I, I direct our general education program on campus which is basically our core curriculum and it's, it's a like a 33 percent administrative role there's a lot of those across my campus and across every campus and so you know i i can be cynical about this and sometimes i am even though i i love my i love what i do i chose to be in this profession so i don't mean to bash it but i, I think we just operate differently from the private sector and I think that just is is quizzical to to a lot of parents that come from the private sector and try to figure out what's going on in college campuses. And, to you know, we have a president that came straight to us from the private sector and business, the business world. And I think he's just kind of scratching his head at times, like, you know, what in the world is going on? But, you know, professors tend to be people that have have lived most of their lives being the smartest person in every room they, they were in and, and want to have a say, want to have a voice in things. And so shared governance is is a big thing. In fact, it's even required by uh, by most accreditation agencies um, in the United States where you know if you're going to receive accreditation it you can't have a top down leadership model like that just that just it doesn't work. Um, uh, or if it does work it's not allowable at least at, at uh, you know in terms of our accreditation agency so college campuses are organizations that are set up to be democratic in principle. And yet, that really slows things down, and it, it provides a whole lot of bloat, and that that escalates costs. You're absolutely right. And so, um, you know, we have some public institutions, and those were set up to to be a little bit more accessible. And then there's private institutions that were oftentimes set up to be to be less accessible, or at least to be more exclusive towards whatever you know uh, religious denomination they were serving, or or whatever whatever other ideology they were serving and that continues to be the case in some sense at least but you know we're we're trying to deal with all of the ways in which all of this exacerbates the costs and increases the uh increases the increases really so you know what the the model that say norway ha- has used or or new zealand um is just now those are countries that just that that that, that take a lot of tax money in through the government, right? It's it's just a really uh, um, it's it's sort of a different um, a, a different way of doing things, and so the high tax rates there uh, offer benefits that that actually help people, and we're talking about nations there that are you know maybe a, a you know a, I don't know one one thirtieth the size of the United States. So so it's kind of apples and oranges in, in some sense, but the funding there is coming from in large part is coming from the, the state that is the federal government there. But but also I think there's there's not nearly the arms race that we've had as well. I've spent time on campuses all over the, the world. And and when, when we have international students come to my campus and everywhere I've taught in the US, the international students come here and they are just amazed at the facilities, right? How nice the classrooms are, how nice the dormitories are. And then, you know, not to mention how nice the athletic facilities are. Well, those things cost money and 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 it's it 's money coming from private entities uh, that is you know private donors or it 's money that 's just coming from tuition hikes, so it 's a model that 's become really difficult for us and we look around the world and see what other nations are doing i 'm um, not sure that that we can see a model there that would work well for us without some major major systemic changes at the federal level.
0: I agree with you there for sure at the federal level, I think a lot of that um, policy. And I think some states do it better. Uh, I know, like, California and New York have, um, you know, nearly free college. Even in Texas, where I am, nearly free college are uh, uh, significantly reduced for in-state. That's a great thing. And I think uh, every state should, um, you know, uh, aspire to that. I want to get into – I do want to get in the athletic facilities, um, but – Before, you said uh, the top-down leadership model doesn't work, and I agree. I don't think it should work there nor anywhere. I'm not a big fan of corporations, and there's a lot of corporate funding now in higher education, and these corporations, you know, want to have uh, influence in curriculum development. They also want to potentially um, profit and monetize, um, you know, research and development that goes on at universities. They also want to um, have graduates uh, able to leave college and essentially, you know, transition right into a role um, within the company seamlessly. Uh, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. You had mentioned about how, um, you know, Colleges, universities, schools are not, you know, necessarily run like a business. I think that's a good thing. I've actually had people on here that argued that, yeah, maybe maybe colleges and schools should run like a business. I don't think that they are different certainly, and there's definitely different expenses and different goals. At least, hopefully, different goals. And Maybe we'll talk about the goals of education generally. I'm a philosopher, so I kind of like those big questions. But let's go into the top-down model and why it doesn't work, and why a democratic model is much better. Co-ops, if you want to, if you want to talk about like. Um, I guess, similarities between business and uh, maybe how higher institutions are run. Co-ops or, you know, uh, workplaces that are owned, operated, profits are shared equally within the workforce. Mondragon is one of my favorite uh, in Spain. They have wage ceiling limits, so you can't be somewhere between like five and nine times the lowest paid worker. Um, managers are actually voted on um, Every year, I believe democratically, that's pretty similar to what they do for chair, right? In an institution. Maybe you can talk about that. And then also want to talk about tenure. I think that's an awesome thing for stability. Congratulations. I saw you just got it right. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Congrats. I know it's really hard. I've had some friends that, you know, have had to go to different colleges and institutions because it's tough. It's tough, probably more tough now to get tenure than ever. But when you finally get it, that's, you know, probably uh, a a relief. Um, you're, You're potentially in the place you never have to, you know, leave from. You can maybe be there for the rest of your career. That's a, that's a, you know, peace of mind. It's a great thing. Gives you stability. Potentially, if you have a research interest, you know, you can really focus on it. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. A lot of people, um, you know, are fighting against tenure because, you know, I guess the argument would be, you know, maybe they're lazy or they don't have to do anything. You know, the, the professor, I'm just being the devil's advocate here when they get it. But I think all workers want that stability. All all workers want that peace of mind. All workers want to be able to go to sleep at night and know tomorrow they're going to have a job. But if you want to talk about like now with the gig economy, um, you know, with temp agencies, all that kind of stuff, um, jobs reports. A lot of the jobs reports, jobs are good, blah, blah, blah. But they don't mention the fact that a lot of these jobs are low paid jobs. A lot of these jobs are service jobs. A lot of these jobs are gig jobs. So. As someone um, that just got tenure, can you talk about the process and how difficult it was, and how it's you know kind of a nice peace of mind? And again, I'm sure a lot of people um, when they talk about education costs bring up tenure, you know, as an argument against it. But again, I think it would be a great thing if all workers, you know, kind of had that stability. So, can you say a few things about the process there and the tenure and the stability maybe that's given you?
1: Yeah, it definitely has. Um, I think the the number one thing is faculty get into to this profession uh in in search of of truth right in search of knowledge the quest for knowledge in our fields that we love learning and so the the tenure system allows us once we've achieved tenure to be able to to really focus even more than what we did in pre-tenure on uh seeking truth and on really yes you know um, serving the students and helping them along their way to seeking truth as well and so i know that sounds kind of pie in the sky but Um, it's, it's a, it's a really nice part of the system and, you know, there's certainly detractors and I think there's, there's arguments and some that are quite logical to, to say that we should get rid of, of tenure. I I hear those and, and I, I think, I think what trumps that is, is, is just what you mentioned, uh, that universities are different from businesses If we're running along a business model, I can see where maybe, you know, someone from the business world doesn't understand the benefits of tenure or think it's just, it's just, you know, uh, uh, fat on the calf or whatever else you want to say. But uh, that's the, that's the reason why we're not businesses, because we're in a different, we have a different telos, we have a different end, right? We're seeking, we're seeking truth and seeking knowledge and, and helping students to do that as well. And so there's something really important about that and, and the achievement of tenure uh, sort of allows some of the the constraints to be stripped away, some of the anxieties to be stripped away, and and should should free someone to be able to do you know theoretically better work because there's less there's less that needs to be done imminently. There's less focus on quantity of what needs to be done. There's less focus on on meeting demands, and so uh, the achievement of this of this rank allows a faculty member to to be able to live into their own and be their best self. Now, are, are there are there faculty members that once they achieve tenure, uh, get lazy uh, or lose motivation? Yeah, of course, that that happens. Right. But that happens in any job, in any profession where uh, you don't always you don't always get what you expected from the employee that you hired. But I think by and large, that that doesn't mean that, that tenure is a bad thing itself. I think tenure is still something that's really uh, uh, important to the sustainability of the university. And it you know, hopefully you have a culture within the university that would, that would encourage continued growth. And that would be, that would celebrate tenure and celebrate the continued work that will be done in the future because of the ways in which it's such a freeing enterprise. It's a way that allows us to, to continue to explore and expand and really be able to do things with a bit more autonomy than what we've done in the past. And and that, that's really, that's really the point of, of all this, that we, we, we believe that we're thought leaders in the particular fields that we study. And so uh, th- this this freedom, this autonomy allows us to continue to drive the fields and maybe take some risks in terms of what it is we're going to study or what it is that we're going to publish or or promote in the work that we do. And I think that's, that's what we need to keep in mind is that's how we advance all of this. You know, there's so much work that is done on the way towards tenure for faculty members. I'm talking about the quantity of work, so much that we talk about administrative blow. We can talk about like the overproliferation of publications by faculty members because of the push towards numbers of publications before one gets tenure. Once you get tenure, that theoretically frees you to be able to actually explore in ways that are a bit more or a bit less risk averse. That can also be more rewarding. That's how we're going to continue to push the envelope in terms of what we know and how much we know. It's by having the freedom to explore and be creative. And, and the attainment of tenure allows one to do that with such a great deal more comfort than what they do in the pre-tenure process. You're great. Uh, you're you're a great speaker.
0: You, you're, you are a professional. You're well-polished. Can I tell you that? Uh, anyways, <laughs> Thank you. but um, no, you really are. I appreciate it. This is a great discussion. I think everyone's getting a little bit smarter having listened to some of this stuff already. <laughs> I haven't even gotten into my bread and butter stuff. So we're going to keep rolling here. You talked about telos, you talked about the ends, but then, um, you know, Public institutions, private institutions, colleges, um, the goal is that hopefully, at least, again, I want to talk about what the goal is, but I'm thinking the goal of education is to create, develop and, um, uh, I guess, encourage curiosity, understanding, pursuit of knowledge, creativity, um, you know, trying to motivate students um, and maybe find their passion, find their calling, find how they want to spend their uh, limited time here on Earth. Uh, we have so limited time and such an amazing world, amazing planet uh, you know, in this universe, I don't know if you, this is way off the topic. Do you see the Mexican stuff? Uh, they found two alien bodies. Did you buy into that? Did you see that today?
1: Yesterday it was? <laughs> I saw headlines. I, I haven't read beyond that.
0: <laughs> I looked into it a little bit. I don't know. Pretty wild stuff going down in Mexico. But anyways, I digress. But speaking of the ends and the telos uh, of education institutions, um, what are these giant endowments all about? Uh, let's go to Harvard, uh, 53 Billion dollars. Yale University, $42 billion. Stanford, $37 billion. Princeton, $37 billion. MIT, which gets a lot of public funding, $27 billion. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, $20 billion. So that's a lot of money. What do these institutions, if their um, role, if their telos, if their end is not profit-driven, what do they need? What's Harvard need 50 billion dollars for?
1: These are just astronomical figures, aren't they? I, I mean, such such high numbers, what, what, do, what do they need that money for is is a great question, right? And they have it. That's one
0: thing. Maybe they don't need it, but they have it, you know? They
1: They have it. And they're the envy of every other school because they have it, uh, th- right? There's just a great deal of jealousy among everybody else. I mean, if you split up the, even the, you know, the, the, one of the lower numbers you said there, MIT, $27 billion, even if you split like half of that, you, you know, you could, you could Virtually sustain overnight, sustain uh, dozens of schools across the country, you know, which is sort of a fraction of what they have in their endowment. And And I think money
0: manager to just on the interest alone to invest it, you should be able to hopefully fund it for in perpetuity, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, every school has a little bit different funding model, but. You, you want to take a draw, and, and colleges and universities are traditionally quite conservative in terms of how they invest their money, because for most schools, at least the schools that aren't the ones that you name, the ones that, that, that are, are tuition driven, yeah. um, you can't have a bad year. If you have a bad year with your endowment, you, know, you you're going under. And so uh, tuition, and then the draw from the endowment is what is what drives so much of the operating. Costs at, at a college or, or university, so you've got these big colleges, and universities, or at least the the elite ones that have these huge endowments, and it's it's a it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a status symbol, right? So you know you take a four percent draw from from fifty three billion dollars, I and mean, that's that's gonna that's gonna go a long ways for for a place like Harvard. You know, other schools that have much more modest endowments are are still taking a four or five percent draw every year. Um, mm-hmm you know less if they if they have to but what do they need this money for you know it 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 offers a cushion that's for sure it offers a cushion offers the opportunity to be able to do such great things but but in in the race towards you know in the competitive race towards being the best college or the best university in the United States and in the world i think that endowment uh is is less it appears to me that that's less something that that comes up need. Of course, it's not of need. But uh, you know, they're also bringing in tons of grant money, and so they're just they're they're. It's not sort of a growth mindset. I think them it's about all right. We we have this money. We can draw from it. It shows that our our alumni care about uh, and believe in what they had, what they got from us, and believe in what we do moving forward. So that that's there. The money is there. Uh, it also shows a connection to uh, to 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 big money. You know, private. Uh, private entities throughout the country as well. And so you have that money through the endowment, but there's also, uh, you know, the amount of money that that a, a university brings in through external grants is also a huge point of pride and And that's money that's that's coming in largely to those those schools that you mentioned those are the ones that have the biggest endowments that could actually give more towards the research that their own faculty are doing from that endowment, and yet their faculty are the ones that are are pushed the most to obtain the external funding and are and are getting so much of that external funding. so it's a cycle that perpetuates itself, and you know I think there's a lot of finance people that look at this and say, this is what a waste of." of money. And I think there's a number of reasons for saying that not the least of which is, it's just kind of dead money. Yeah, a ton of money is just sitting there that could be put into the economy in other ways that actually works. Yeah, it's, right? money's
0: it's not it's sitting there, it's in these investment funds, and yeah, probably will eventually get put to use for big shiny buildings. But uh, I've walked around the Harvard campus before, there's plenty of nice buildings there. I don't think they need, uh, I think they got plenty right now. Uh, I've seen some other, you know, campuses that you know, need, need a facelift or, you know, need a little bit of extra funding. Um, but it tends to, you know, the, the graduates that, that go to those elite schools, if you want to call them that, um, they tend to have the big paychecks, they tend to have the big bank accounts, and that's where the, the money tends to go. I remember reading an article that was something like, uh, you know, someone – Cut a big check for Stanford, and I think someone was like, uh, "Hey, if you're going to cut a big check for anywhere, you know, they picked some you know random school in Ohio. You know, that's 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 Stanford doesn't need any more money, you know." Uh, So, a couple more questions here. Uh, Let's focus on education for a little bit, and then we'll move to some other topics. What is education about? Who's it for? Is it just for elites? Is it for everyone? Uh, And should the goal of education? We talked about it a little bit to develop, um, you know, creative thinkers. Uh, maybe thinkers that um, question authority, make uh, ask difficult questions uh, to teachers, professors, researchers, uh, administrators, or maybe what some people think. Uh, I'm a big Chomsky head. I read a lot of Noam Chomsky, uh, and he said um, you know, education is more seemingly to teach for conformity, obedience to indoctrinate and to kind of, um, you know, again, fit people into that corporate system that's now more and more funded by these corporations so that, you know, their investment pays off and so that they can seamlessly, again, kind of just transition right into the workplace. So what is education? Who is it for? What's it all about?
1: You probably get different answers if you ask different institutions so what their goals are right and i think that's fair and and that's that's good right we have different types of institutions especially in the united states that function differently and that that serve different needs um you know the 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 most imminent uh, benefactor of education is the student we always talk about the student everything that we do is is for the student and And yet, I think the advancement of knowledge is is an important thing as well. The part of what we do, the enterprise of higher education, is to ensure that we continue to to press forward in terms of what we know and how we know things. So, you know, you mentioned that I'm the director of general education on my campus. We have a core a core curriculum that I oversee. and And the objectives that we have, we we try to we try to walk a fine line between um, the the value that we believe in of of the liberal arts. And and preparing students for an ever-changing world and the employment that they'll have in in that ever-changing world, as well as you know just their sort of their roles as citizens, as as servants and leaders, and in, in the ever-changing world. So uh, the objectives that we have within this core curriculum, you know, one of them has to do with asking and examining answers to big questions. So we're talking about curiosity. That's an important thing for us, and I think it's an important thing for uh, for all. all all higher education, no matter what the what the end goal of the particular university is, developing people who are good at asking questions and 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 are seeking answers to some of those big questions in life, I think leads to a great deal of meaningfulness, no matter what the enterprise is within higher education. Um, one of our objectives is is uh, examining diverse perspectives and different perspectives, and so it's about getting outside yourself, getting outside your own worldview, and and examining the ideas of those who are different from oneself. Um, we, we have objectives related to, to how, we, how we live in community. And so, so we, we call this, these are our virtues of public discourse. And, and it's a bit Aristotelian, but really at the end of the day, it's about how we, how we live together on campus and, and allowing this to be kind of a, an incubator for our students to leave this bubble of this college and to live in community wherever else they move to. We have uh, objectives related to how we communicate, knowing that that's sort of a transferable skill. No matter what one is doing as a job, as a vocation, you got know, it. You got to know how to communicate with others. So that seems to be an important thing and, and sort of a skill that we have. Um, critical thinking is a big thing for us. And it's a, it's sort of a buzzword, you know, across the higher education sector. Um, uh, and then and then a couple that are related to um, to our students and, and what their particular faith commitments might be as as well as sort of their own their own convictions. And uh, and You're their own value systems,
0: school, right? You're at a faith-based. I'm at a faith-based school. school. I am. So how does I am. That, how does that influence, um, you know, your your message, your goal, your end game, your telos?
1: Yeah. Well, so I'm at I'm at Hope College, and Hope College uh, it uh, lives within the historic Christian faith. That phrase within our mission statement is very intentional. We don't require anyone to have uh, any particular Christian faith, any particular faith at all. In fact, I have students every semester that are very open about about being agnostic or being atheistic or or searching, and and that that's fine. That's great. Uh, we we offer uh, faith-based programming, co-curricular programming. None of it is required. We don't require our students to sign any kind of uh, um, social behavioral contract that that fits with any type of uh, Christian denomination, but we are a a faith-based school, so we operate from within the historic Christian faith. So students that come here have to take two classes from our religion department, um, and so they have to learn about uh, certain fundamental tenets of religion. But but there's nothing that's that's required of a student, and there's nothing that is going to be shoved down a student's throat related to doctrine. So, we, I I try to say that with with a badge of honor uh, because I I believe in, in this mission, and I do think it changes our telos. I think it, it offers something that that's there. I, I think a you know a liberal arts school or a school just working to advance knowledge could very easily have a, have um, a telos outside of of a particular religious faith, but in the presence of a religious faith, that telos is so much more obvious. And so uh, you know, there, there, are, there are simpler questions to some of the existential questions that our students are asking that we're talking through when it comes to a particular uh, a faith-based creed or, or a particular you know, slant towards uh, one particular faith or, or another.
0: What about um, differences between public institutions, private institutions? Um, do you think there's a lot of differences? I guess Hope College, right, is a, a is a private institution. Uh, you've been in some public institutions as well. Do you see any differences in the students, in the message, in the telos, in the faculty, or is it just, uh, you know, really similar?
1: The differences that I've seen I think have less to do with, um, with the school I'm at now, Hope College, being – being a, uh, affiliated with the historic Christian faith than it is uh, being sort of a, a private and therefore more expensive college and university. So the public schools that I've been at, um, I guess I've, you know, my my sample size here is not is not terribly big. So so what I'm saying is based on my own experiences, but it, it seems as though, um, you know, a public institution is set up to do what it's set up to do, and that is to... Uh, to welcome students in or to, ha- to, to have students come in specifically from the state that that at least in part supports the particular school, right? So it's set up for for that state's constituents, for the citizens, for the young people of that state, and it's helping promote them. And, and there's a particular, uh, you know, a, a particularly local nature to to some of what goes on there because of the the students that you have that come to your school from within the state, right? So there's something that's that's there, and I think there's something that's expected there. That uh, because the state supports, at least again in, in some way, and it's in a decreasing way, supports the particular public institution. The expectation is that is that it would serve the students of that state. So there's something that's there, and I think that um, something that provides comfort in one way for a student to be able to say, well, this is sort of what I've meant, what I meant to do. You know, I, I live in, you know, Idaho, so I'm I'm gonna. I, I, I'm expected to, you know, continue to, as if I'm gonna continue to live in Idaho, it would make sense for me to go to a public institution in Idaho, right? You know something
0: about potatoes, right?
1: So something about potato, right? That, that potato management program or something yeah, like that. I, right? I think I know. Uh, yeah,
0: I think they have one of the best potato management uh, programs in the country. What about a liberal arts education? What's that all about? Uh, like economics, political theory, philosophy um, versus maybe, you know, like an engineering school, um, that sort of thing. Um, you think there's different, uh, you know, goals, uh, different. Uh, classes taught, different curriculum, uh, you know, and, you know, what's a liberal arts education is all about. What's, what should it be about?
1: You know, traditionally, there's been, there's been, uh, uh, you know, the seven sort of disciplines of the liberal arts. And if you push me on those, I'm going to draw a blank on exactly what they are, but I mean, like history, we're thinking
0: economics. Yeah, uh,
1: that's exactly that it. Right. Yeah. So it's history and philosophy, mathematics. Um, and then we're bringing in such things as like, uh, you know, you know, music and appreciation for sort of so so things that are are within culture, and a, a true liberal arts school is is doing exactly that. It's it's inculcating this love of learning for a student uh, by by offering them um, you know deep explorations using sort of great books that have been written throughout the course of time and oh, studying yeah. you know some similar classics. Yeah, yeah classics, some classics. Comics, yeah. right so there, there's you know we. we a liberal arts school would do that. The institution I'm at is actually kind of a hybrid, and there are a lot of schools that would claim to be liberal arts schools, and, and, and we are nominally, but but we also have professional programs. And part of that is just the the pull of, uh, you know, the economic climate of things, that there's there's a lot of students that want a pre-professional program because they actually know what they want to do. And a liberal arts would allow one to explore, uh, you know, in in – maybe broader ways than, than just being in a school that only offers, you know, professionalized programs or, you know, making you decide a major your, your freshman year or whatnot.
0: I do want to get into some philosophy stuff and we're going to do that, but I've had some artists on here. What is art?
1: Oh my gosh. What is <laughs> art?
0: Questions. I love this stuff. This is my favorite stuff. So yeah. some of my favorite philosophers, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, they've all talked about art. I think most philosophers talk about it and fail. Uh, it's definitely a difficult uh, concept. We talked a little bit about last night. I had a, an artist on here. Um, there's some sort of rules. You know, there is, you're restricted uh, in some sense, um, but they're really loose rules. It can be many different things to many different people, um, but there have to be some rules to it. You know, there has, has to be some sort of, uh, defining features of art, but it's certainly not black and white. It's a lot of gray area, and again, I think it means a lot of different things to different people. Um, are you an artist, and what is art?
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's such a great question. And this is what she said, it,
0: and I liked it. She said everyone is an artist, and 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 she asked me, "Are you an artist?" And I said, "No." And by the end of the podcast, I said, "Yeah, I'm an artist, and everyone <laughs> is one." <laughs> I was all in. I was all in. So, are you an artist, and what is art?
1: Well, I definitely feel like, you know, one of of the first things that uh, I ever, you know, remember is like a sort of like an adult moment when my parents were talking to me like, like I was an adult and I was maybe in in middle school and we were talking about this person that we knew that was just lived down the street from us, who was also a professor of math. And, and this professor of math had, had a son who was, who was an artist, a painter. And we just talking about this family. I remember my parents saying, well, that, that, that math professor really math is his, is his art, art medium. Right. He is an artist of math, really, is, is what it is. And I always sort of loved hearing that. And so when I became a professor and, and you know, I, I sort of, I guess, envisioned that's what that's what we do. That's what professors do. And I, I agree with with your guest uh, last night that I think, you know, we're all. We're all artists. We can all describe ourselves and understand who we are, you know, through the lens of, of being, being creative in our, in our jobs and, and what we do. And there's something really cool about that, whether it's our, sorry, whether it's our jobs or sort of something avocational in our lives that, that we pursue, you know, for, for the beauty, for the aesthetics of it all. I am I'm certainly, um, you know, I love, I love chatting about questions like, like that. The difficulty for me with that one is that I study sport. <laughs> and sport yeah. sport is rule bound i mean yeah. and, and that's that's what's obvious about it. that's what that's what allows it to make sense uh to so many people is that we understand the structure of it and i think a lot of people that are really deeply versed in the world of sport or one of the worlds of sport would have a hard time understanding some of what makes art beautiful or 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 maybe struggles to uh, to sort of subjectively evaluate what they see in terms of art, right? I because saw Tiger of, because Woods in his heyday.
0: I saw Tiger Woods in his heyday, and golf club was absolutely his paintbrush. He was an artist. The things he was able to do, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, Larry Bird, uh, you know, I definitely, right? I see some artistic qualities to some of these all-time greats.
1: One hundred percent. And in the sport philosophy world, actually, some of these some of these athletes that that push the boundaries of, so, so like we can talk about sport as being rule bound and and it is, but it's rule bound in a way that we understand in order to be able to have the freedom to act artistically within that rule structure, right? Within, within that, that paradigm of that particular sport. So, so artists definitely can, can develop within that particular sport. And in the sport philosophy world, um, we, we refer to these athletes that really push the envelope in terms of what is, what is, what we're capable of, but also what we come to appreciate and how we behave within sports as strong poets. And what's a poet, if not an artist, right? An artist with, with words. And so um, calling, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant, a strong poet, I think has a sense that uh, what, we're, what we're saying is he's an artist, right? The things that he's doing, he, he is driving things in new and different ways and really forcing us because of the skill that he executes it with, he's forcing us to appreciate what it is that he's doing, and it doesn't feel forced because there's a beauty to it, and I think that's something that 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 artists do uh, uh, well, and that is you know pull us into the beauty that they've created, and help us to understand the, uh, that it is beautiful because of the skill that they've used to get there.
0: I, I do want to get into philosophy stuff, um, but I, w- I do have a couple other questions about sport and and uh, education, and, you know, and how, and how they're tied into, uh, at least in American culture. Um, but I want to shout out to uh, Maddie Clifford, my guest last night, a.k.a. Mad Lines. And also, I did I mentioned Tiger Woods and some all, other all-time greats, but I got to shout out the king, Western Pennsylvania, Arnie Palmer, the things he was able to do with the golf club, popularized the sport. Uh, he was a legend. R.I.P. We miss you. You were a king, my man. Uh, but anyways, back to Sport. Um, LSU. I saw. It, I saw a video uh, tweeted out by ESPN, and this is just a multi-million-dollar um, facility. Uh, TV screens on all the lockers. Um, you know, uh, virtual reality, big leather couches, ping pong tables. You name it. I mean, this is a multi-million-dollar facility. And I and I and I remember reading someone uh, tweeted. Uh, now send a picture of the library. And I said that's good. I totally agree. So, what do you think about that? What about all the money invested in sport in these universities, especially these big time universities in the SEC, in the Big Ten? All this conference realignment. Uh, some of the, some of these, um, you know, schools sport is big business to them. Uh, is this taking away from the academic experience? Is this taking away funding and resources from the academic experience and libraries and research labs and stuff like that? I mean, I remember going to class in the basement in some of these anatomy labs, and then you walk past the the football training facility and it's like, is this the NFL? I mean, holy cow.
1: A couple of years ago, oh, this is maybe fifteen years ago now. I took a bunch of students to um, a, a big time. You know, it was a it was a a school in a Power Five conference. We got a chance to see the football locker room, and it was like the most unbelievable locker room that any of us had ever seen. And we're about to walk out of it, and the person who's giving us the tour says, uh, "You guys, lucky you got in here because they're just starting reconstruction on this. They're actually gonna tear this place up, and and make it even better." And our, oh damn, my, my students gosh. were like, "What? Like, you're kidding me?" Like, and at that point in time, it was all about like putting USB ports into each. Um, you know, into each locker individually and just making it, I mean, such a cush space. So, you know, cynics of, of intercollegiate athletics would say that, that, that intercollegiate athletics is the tail that wags the dog and that's not the way it should be. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that recognize that there's a lot of good that comes from that as well. It just seems to be good that can't get itself out of its, it can't get out of its own way. It, it's a good that, um, that at best is considered to be, you know, mildly hypocritical of the values that an institution is trying to promote. You know, I'm someone that loves sports, and and I, I think I could throw out any argument uh, for why intercollegiate athletics are, are you know, uh, overfunded and overemphasized on a college campus, and, and that's for sure. But on a Saturday in the fall, like, you'll find me just with, you know, with, with the millions of other people in the U.S. sitting on my couch watching a college football game.
0: Definitely so a great recruitment that... tool. I mean, a great recruitment yeah. tool. When when schools win a national championship or something like that, you always check out the uh, you know the application rate, and it's always skyrocketing. So no doubt about that. It, it definitely is free marketing, or I guess not free, but you know when you're on uh you know big tent big big time networks uh you know national broadcasts. That's a good recruitment tool for sure.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a professor, uh, well, a retired professor from, from Notre Dame, a retired English professor that wrote a book called Beer and Circus. And basically it was a criticism of big time intercollegiate athletics. The idea is that what, what we do now at big time universities with the athletic programs is uh, so similar to what, um, you know, the, the emperors in ancient Rome would do to satisfy the masses of people. And that is give them what they want, give them circuses, that is the entertainment to take their minds off the, whatever is not good in life, and give them food, free food, right, free meals. And so beer and circus has kind of, you know, made its, made its round again here in the contemporary world in the form of intercollegiate athletics at, at institutions of higher education. So, you know, it's absolutely the case. Could, could you argue that, um, that there's something that's logical, some things that are logical about this economic model? Uh, yes, for sure, for sure. Um, it's not a, it's not a model that's that will continue to stay as is. There's just too many moving parts and there's too much hypocrisy and, and there's too much at stake uh, that is, I think, sent in the wrong direction. I think we're seeing some of this with the ability to pay players based on their name, image and likeness that the the economic model of intercollegiate athletics is going to change and is changing and we'll see how that impacts the institutions that that use Include athletics, specifically football, is such a recruiting tool. You know, you you and I uh, both know that if a school wins the national championship in football or even just wins their conference in a Power Five conference, they're going to see uh, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 more applications from prospective students the following year because of all of the recognition that they got across the country for being excellent at football and having the general public, at least high school senior students, believe that because they're excellent in football, that would be a great place to go to college.
0: So we're really talking about basketball and football, though. I mean, these 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 big-time money uh, programs, we're not talking about fencing. We're not talking about IM bowling. We're not talking about gymnastics. We're not even talking about ice hockey, uh, which – um, you know, is is, is uh, you know, has dif- funding issues, and I guess Title IX. A lot of times, ice hockey gets cut, and that sort of thing. So we're really just talking about base. I'm sorry, baseball, not baseball. Uh, we're really talking about basketball and football. And I'm looking at all this like conference realignment stuff. Um, and now we got the Big Ten, and now the ACC with these national conferences, uh, I even saw Rick Pitino. He was the, the voice of reason and, and ethics, apparently. Uh, I don't want to go into his baggage, but I remember him saying, like, you know, the, these schools, uh, you know, these, these lower-level um you know, even, I think even said college basketball, we don't want to spend all weekend in the airport, you know, going from coast to coast to playing in a game. Uh, football can do it because it's one game a week. Um, and it's a lot of, it's big money. But now these, these schools and this, this conference realignment stuff and all these other sports, these, you know, I, certainly I am sports, but um, you know, these lesser sports with less funding, golf, uh, softball, all that kind of stuff. Now they have to. Uh, travel uh, to and from you know coast to coast uh, you know certainly you would think uh, if someone has a test on a on a monday or or on a friday you know they're gonna have to push it back it's it's definitely taken away from the athletic or from the academic experience so uh, what do you think about though basketball football these big time programs conference realignment shouldn't these uh, institutions or shouldn't these programs shouldn't they just break away from college sports and kind of do their own thing and 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 stop making a, and a, uh, stop making the student ha- athlete experience a, a hypocrisy with these million dollar Nil deals why don't they just become their own little pro league and forget about going to class what do you think about all that stuff maybe just making an under 25 league or something like that
1: <laughs> I mean the short answer for me when it comes to football is yes football should absolutely break away and it be its own thing. And it, and it should function, I mean, it should operate in a way that it that it is normative to, to what it actually is right now. And what it is right now is a minor league for the NFL. It should operate that way, right? It operates that way in terms of sending the players there, but it doesn't operate like the baseball minor league system. And I think it, it, it very well could, and it would just be a couple little tweaks here and there to be able to do that. And that, to me, makes sense. And I think that's actually the road that we're headed towards because so much so much money is tied up in football football drives conference realignment it always has it always will because that's where the money is the money that is gained from these tv deals that conferences have that's what that's what drives everything but conference realignment even before tv deals is always driven by football so you're right you know a football team can can travel across the country they're only going to miss a day or two of school they do that anyways uh, quite quite often, and so that's not as big a deal. What what is a bigger deal is when you have say uh, um, a men's tennis team traveling across the country to play a match midweek, and uh, you know tennis matches could be you know if you have two teams that are mismatched uh, at, at a particular flight. I mean you, you could you could fly across the country and play a 45 minute match. And then and then be done. So you, I mean, that that doesn't seem to me to, to make a whole lot of sense. So if we separated football from all this, I think I think I think more more dominoes would fall in the right direction to what what we probably want from all this. And that is, we have an appetite for football. And we can, we can keep these teams connected to the colleges and universities that they're part of right now, but it it really is a, it's a, it's a feeding ground. It's a minor league for the NFL. And so to go that direction seems to me to make sense. I think that's actually the way economically it'll be headed. It's just going to take time because of the NCAA's constraints. I think we got to keep in mind too, that at one point in time, all of our major sports were, were East coast sports. It wasn't until 1958 that. Uh, that we had any baseball teams on the West coast. And that was a big change. Now, of course, those are professional athletes who aren't, uh, um, you know, aren't supposed to be taking classes, you know, whether that's a, you want know, to think that that's a sham for college athletes or not, but you know, that was cross country travel. And at that point in time, it was a big deal. Do we really want our teams to travel out West from New York city to San Francisco and LA? And they were just ways of packaging. It was something new, um, but it was, it was something that the consumer wanted and I think there's, you know, the consumer seems to want more games between good football teams and less games, again, pitting one good football team against one bad football team. And so these bigger conferences, even if they have to be nationwide, uh, seems to be what the consumer wants.
0: Have you looked into education models in other countries? I haven't looked too much into this. I started following soccer maybe 10 years back, you know, started with one of the World Cups, and then I kind of got into it, picked a Premier League team and all that kind of stuff. And there aren't these ginormous, um, you know, college sports programs in Europe and really anywhere else in the world, for that matter. And I've kind of followed some of the Premier League soccer stuff. They have these, like, soccer academies for basically people that are going to focus on sport for their life and for their career. And if they're not good enough um, to... Uh, become a professional athlete, you know, maybe they become a coach or a physio or equipment manager or whatever, a lot of different tracks. But they're not, you know, they're not going to, you know, to school to study physics. They're going to to play football or, you know, soccer outside of the U.S. Or, I'm sorry, in the U.S. So what do you think about that kind of model, though? And you don't see these big-time college football programs or any of these big-time sports programs, at least that I'm aware of, at least that I've looked at, outside the country where you have – you know the big house, a hundred thousand seat stadium. I and mean, we don't have these ginormous stadiums in Europe or New Zealand or any of these countries that I talked about, where education is free or nearly free. So, what you about what about those models and how they differ from the U.S. model?
1: I, I love the international sport model. I, I don't think it's perfect, but I love a lot about it. I love that it's it's a localized it has a localized basis to it, right? Every every locale every city every town every village has the opportunity to have a team and as your team continues to win you get to continue to move up so i love the promotion and relegation system i love how that incentivizes winning and and helps promote you know these teams these businesses right teams uh sort of forces them to try to win otherwise you're you're falling out of the top ranks and you're you're losing money doing that so i i like that um what i don't like about that sort of club academy model is that the athletes um, get even, even less of an education. I, I think, I think it's even more of a mockery, more of a sham uh, because at the, at the academies they would be going to school half a day. And there's certainly an opportunity to learn doing that, but you know, you're essentially a professional from whenever the, the club signs you. And that could be as young as you know 12 or 13, although I'm not sure when the money actually vests, you know, it's at a young age. And so you, you have a lot of professional soccer players around the world who, who don't have a college education in any way, shape, or form, who who barely even have what we would consider to be maybe a high school education. So I, I don't like that about it, but there's a lot to like about the club model that separates education from sport. And the U.S. is, you're right, the only country in the world that does it this way, and certainly to this extreme, that you could find university-affiliated teams in other countries but they're definitely not the elite in the particular sport like it is in the United States and so there's something unique about our model and I think there's a lot of good about that too but I also think that there's a lot that has uh, um, that, that hurts to get back to you know early on in our conversation talking about the economics of higher education and the funding models there's a lot that sport has done to to push the economic model of higher education uh, to the brink of collapse I would say Because of the arms race, because of the money that has sunk into athletics. There are so many NCAA schools that, in order to fund their athletic departments, which don't make enough money on their own to support themselves, there are so many schools that ask so much money of students as student fees that just go to support that.
0: Yeah, tuition tuition's going up, but then uh, you know you got fees to attend the games, you have fees to work out in the weight room. This this is all extra stuff. This is additional costs to the already, you know, rising tuition fees. You got parking fees, you got fees for books, you got fees to live in the dorms, which are certainly not lux- luxurious, at least if you've lived in any of the dorms I have throughout my academic career. So there's just more and more of the burden pushed off onto um, students for sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of problems we've we got to get to. And I, I think the – Um, you know, right now the the Biden administration, after turning off student loan payments, they have the power, at least if you listen to some people and believe some of the arguments have the power, I at least believe these arguments, uh, they have the power with the education act to, um, to, to cancel the debt. Um, they have the power to turn off the debt. Uh, they didn't need this money for four years. Um, they could certainly, they don't need to restart it now, especially, especially in this cost of living crisis. Uh, it's 1.77, uh, trillion dollars. Holy cow. That's a lot of money. Um, and uh, and the costs are only going up. And there's a lot of propaganda about the Biden administration um, canceling debt, and he has, but it actually hasn't even kept up. Uh, the total student debt has been growing since the Biden uh, administration came into office. So, anyways, I don't want to get too off on the political tangent, but the way I see student debt is it's a disciplinary tool. It limits your choice. When you have uh, you know a hundred thousand dollars or more in student debt, you kind of have to you know hit the ground running and get a job and get a hopefully a decent paying job. And a lot of people. Um, after a four-year degree, find out that yeah, the the um, you know the, the wages um, certainly a lot better with a with a master's degree. So I think that you know. And and some of these entry level jobs are even asking for, uh, you know, a master's degree. So they are also also what I've kind of seen is just kind of degree inflation, you know, uh, employers and and workplaces are asking for more and more. And yet the salaries, if you looked at some of the rural wages over the last five decades, they're not much different than they were in the um, late 1970s, early 80s so what about what about the what about the benefit of college and advanced degrees um, I think that I think that's maybe one of the reasons that you're having Recruiting issues is because you know the costs are going up, and yet um, wages for college graduates and even master's degrees are you know relatively stagnant, at least have been for some period of time, and haven't even kept up with inflation. I think we're again we're in a cost of living crisis right now. But that often isn't that a time when um, universities see an influx uh, of students when there is like a depression or recession. I, I mentioned a lot there, but what do you think about all that stuff I just mentioned?
1: Yeah. Well, can I, do you mind if I share what my institution is working on? Yes, yes. do it. I, I think, I think this is, so this is, this is cutting edge. And in this fact, it's gotten a lot. Malcolm Gladwell, right? Did you mention yep, this? Yep. Malcolm Gladwell had a, a podcast episode about this. He came to our campus for a couple of days and interviewed a number of people on campus. And so, so we call it the Hope Forward program or Hope College. But the idea is that we're trying to set up a model that is based on a gift economy where uh, you eventually we get to the point where students pay it forward towards the next students to be able to come to Hope College. This vision all came uh, based on, you know, a a year or two of conversations. Our our president, every time he would sit down with a student, say, you know, what are you going to do after you graduate? And the students, by and large, would respond by saying, here's what I'm going to do, but let me tell you what I would really love to be able to do. And his follow-up question is, well, why don't you do what you would really love to be able to do? And they say, well, because I'll have student debt, I need to make a job, and I, I need to have a job, I need to make money in order to be able to continue to live and pay off my, my student loans. And and so the idea is we're trying to raise enough money to have an endowment that would that would allow for free tuition for every student on campus who would then, upon graduating, be able to sort of pay it forward and be able to continue to help grow the endowment by offering something back to the college in return. For the gift that they had received there's no contract about all this but it's all based on the idea of um, number one accessibility right colleges is is is, um, is the great um, is the great elevator right it's the it's it's the way that um, you know students that have access to good colleges uh, tend to be able to do better in their post college career and their you know in their working life and so we want to be able to Provide access to anybody to come to Hope College, regardless of you know their their financial means. Um, but it's also built on the principle of generosity—the idea that um, when you receive a gift, uh, it, it would it would it would do something within you that would make you want to 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 be be more giving of yourself as well. And and that doesn't necessarily mean financially, but to be able to do things that are really stirring your heart and serve where the world has great needs and so that's kind of those are kind of those are two of the pillars the third one is community that, that really what we're trying to do is engage with our students not just for four years but we're engaging with you for 40 years you know or 44 years or whatever it is that you come to college for four years on our campus yeah but you know we, we want to make sure that you're staying in touch that we can continue to, to work with you and you can work with us throughout the duration of your career and even beyond that so we're, we're trying to uh, we're, we're trying to to realize or to actualize this new model that that we have set forth and it's been approved by our board of trustees we've been working on it for a couple years now and it's gotten great publicity i mean a a lot of people really love the idea and uh, um, you know we're just we're just excited about it and and you know hoping that at some point in time we would be able to have an endowment of the size that would allow us to do that for all our students
0: are you one of the only colleges that are doing this type of model right now? Is this are you spearheading it, pioneering it, or is there some other colleges out there doing uh, similar things?
1: Malcolm Gladwell has said that you know, he said that we were sort of revolutionaries. That that this is a revolutionary idea. There are other schools that are doing some things like that, but I think the idea that this is based on sort of giving and 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 paying being paid you know paying forward that there's something about developing the community and developing generosity and that this is based on accessibility for students that wouldn't otherwise be able to come to Hope College because they don't have the financial means for it. I think that's, that's revolutionary. The economic model, the way that we're going about it, I, I don't know if I can tell you if that's, if, if that's unique to us, but it seems to me that there are other schools that are, have maybe done similar things or are able to offer a whole lot more discounted or even free tuition because of their large endowments. But I think it, it may not be based on the principles that ours is based on.
0: All right. Philosophy. Let's end with some philosophy stuff. You had mentioned this uh, in our first uh, brief discussion on education. Let's get back to it. What is knowledge? What is truth? And how do you know when you found it?
1: Yeah, boy, if I had the answer to, to those questions, like if I had the answer, I, I think I, I would be a, a You wouldn't a be rich on man. this
0: podcast. You would not be on this podcast. You'd be <laughs> doing world tours, stadium shows, hey, yeah, you'd be you couldn't. Yeah, you couldn't find a ticket in the house if you had those answers.
1: Yeah, you know, I think as a as a philosopher, we ask we ask epist- epistemological questions, you know, about how how we know things. And so, when I'm teaching my students, that that's kind of what we're after is is what are the modes of of obtaining knowledge. And sometimes, you know, those are specific to to disciplines and within philosophy, that's one of the most difficult questions to ask. Right? How do we actually know things? And I teach in a kinesiology department where you know, our students are science heavy and they're science driven. And so to, to have philosophy in there, you know, how do we how do we really know or what, what, what is knowledge? What, when do I know that I know something? And that's when we have to rely on the methodologies and, and the, the, the community of scholars that have come before us and use, uh, you know, uh, learn the way that they did. But uh, that's probably my best answer to that. You know, what, what is truth and when do we come to know it? Um, you know, you asked about the telos of a Christian college earlier on, and, and there's, a, there's a direct response within the Christian faith to that question. You know, what is, what is the truth? How do we do we find it? Well, in the Christian faith, Jesus Christ is the truth. And there, there's something that's, uh, that's beautiful about that. And I can see from the outside there, there's something that is probably a little bit eye-rolling, uh, you know, eye-roll-inducing about that. That is, well, it's such an easy answer. Uh, and this isn't a question that's meant to have an easy answer. So that, that's, you know, those are some of the conversations that we have at a Christian liberal arts institution, that, that there is a telos, there is an ultimate truth, you know, an ultimate reality, an ultimate concern uh, that, that Christians adhere to. Um, how do we know we found that, that truth? How do we know that that is the truth? And so uh, those are the questions we continue to wrestle with.
0: So I mentioned some, wrote down some names here. Maybe Socrates was uh, before Christianity, but Galileo, uh, Copernicus, uh, all these three philosophers, scientists, maybe even uh, had run-ins with the establishment, had run-ins with religion. Why? Why does there tend to be persecution from you know faith-based institutions? And the establishment when people try to question uh, established dogma or established doctrine, uh, established um, ideologies or, you know, favorite truths. Why why do these people tend to get um, persecuted for for kind trying to kind of revolutionize um, thinking? You know, you you said you mentioned you're doing a revolutionary model. Um, So why do revolutionary thinkers, um, why do they tend to get um, oppressed?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think there's something to that. I think oftentimes when we're fed, you know, particular doctrines, particular dogma, our entire lives, you know, we tend to hold that so near and dear to us. And it almost becomes as if it's a, a you know, it's re- it's reified in our lives, that ideology, whatever it is, that that doctrine. And so to have someone question that, uh, we, we oftentimes get defensive, and that's, that's the beauty of the mission at Hope College here is that, you know, we're open to exploring, to asking those questions. There's no doctrine that will be forced down a student's throat. We're learning about Christian doctrine in the religion class, but we're learning about you know, Buddhist uh, uh, tenets of faith and, and, and Hinduism and Islam and, you know, other faiths as well. I think it, it's a it's a matter of studying religion in some sense to understand what religion does to the person and how it changes the commun- community along with the individual. So I think there's, I, I actually um, get really, I, I really enjoy when, when my colleagues in the religion department make a joke that so often they get students that come to them, and when they ask these students big questions, the answer is always this. Jesus, and that's such a shallow answer, right? I mean, it's a it's an unthoughtful answer so so often. And so, the idea is that I think when when people of faith or of a particular doctrine, you know, will oppress those who will question that particular faith or doctrine, it comes from ignorance. And and I think a Christian liberal arts school, a Christian school in general, should be one that should be open to encouraging students to asking the big questions. Of ultimate concern and being open to to what those and what a, a variety of answers might be, and so often in the, throughout the course of history that just hasn't been the case, um, you know especially when uh, when the, when the church came about this is this is post Socrates of course but uh, you know when the when the, the Christian Church sort of became tied in with the government you know it was, it was the, the the precursor to what we know as the Catholic Church, there was so much power there and so the oppression could come systematically through through the seats of power. Of course, that hasn't been the case through much of history, but it was for that point.
0: Yeah. There's, there's the power uh, institutions. I think I was on a podcast this week, but absolute power corrupts absolutely or something along those lines. So yeah, yep. there's definitely yep. uh, there's definitely some issues when power in powerful institutions, especially when the church and state come together, which is why I certainly like a uh, separation of those two things. Um, I I mentioned it before, one of my favorite modern philosophers, Noam Chomsky, maybe the, uh, I guess the New York Times said he's the most quoted intellectual alive. He actually has a book, The Role of Intellectuals, and uh, to paraphrase it, should be to expose lies and speak the truth. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I, I still find myself having trouble getting over what I think has been, and I've only seen it quoted secondhand, uh, uh, Chomsky's disdain for sports. <laughs> so He does not a...
0: like sports. No, he does not like sports, for sure. Right. He's, right. I think he said something like, um, why do I care? He's talking about his, his uh, time in high school. He's like, why do I care if the kid down the street beats the kid? Uh, you know, a block, or you know, on the other side of town, in the football game on a Friday night, I'd probably hate the kid across on the other side of town, and I definitely don't like the kid across the street. I'm paraphrasing. So why do why do I care? So no doubt, he has disdain for sports competition uh that's just not yeah that's just not his thing for sure and i, I like the argument it's interesting to me especially uh i've gotten really big into philosophy and in some of his readings for someone that grew up in western pennsylvania when sport and football especially is so important to the culture so yeah i, I definitely i like his viewpoints um but certainly it clashes at least with my upbringing for sure
1: yeah And I, I get that. And that, that's, that's sort of one of my, you know, deep seated, uh, beliefs that, that I, I need to allow to be exposed to the light of day, right? That sport might not be everything to everybody that it is to me. And I think Chomsky's got a point and he might be speaking polemically. Maybe he's not, but it's certainly worth considering. I think what he says, uh, about, about the role of, of the intellectual is, is really important. And I think, um, you know if if we as 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 faculty members who are considered part of the link the uh, um yeah, the, the intellectual leaders you know on the plan or at least in the united states i think if we're not saying things provocative or asking provocative questions then then we're probably uh, uh too watered down or we have probably lost what it, what we need to have that edge that makes that makes what we do special and I think that's a good reminder that we should be exposing lies. We should be offering critiques of what there is, and we should be offering alternatives. And those are two separate things and don't always have to go together. But exposing lies, we need to be considering things, reconsidering things, and critiquing things. And we need to be encouraging our students to do that as well. And it doesn't mean we need to have our students be deconstructionists. But I do think what it means is that we live such traditional. Uh, in some sense, lazy, uh, risk-averse lives, and and that's not what really uh, spawns our growth.
0: Well said. I totally agree on that. Uh, I want to. I don't want to hammer Chomsky too much here in in, in these t- type of questions, but um, one thing he said of intellectuals they, they tend to be the most uh, indoctrinated people. Uh, you spend, you know, intellectuals spend most of their life in school, um, decades learning, uh, learning the established doctrinal system. Um, you know, and again, a lot of uh, a lot of the education is, um, you know. Uh, testing and standardized tests and teach to tests and memorization and regurgitation and I think there's a lot of pushback, especially modern um, you know, educational models. But I think when he was going to school, um, you know, things were a lot different. Um but what do you think about uh what do you think about Chomsky's thought that uh, the, the intellectuals and those that are most educated are tend to be the most indoctrinated. What do you think about dogma and biases? Are you aware of yours? Are you aware that you have them? Do you try to stay objective? And what of objectivity? What do you think about all that stuff?
1: Well, faculty members, those who, who rise up the ranks of academia, are traditionally the ones that do the best in the school systems that they were raised in. And so those are, are, are rather conforming entities. so I, I get that I understand that, and we're just the ones that have done the best in those particular uh, institutions. So, you know, if we're going to get back to the issue of tenure that you asked about earlier, I think that's that's one of the beauties of it is is it it allows it, it allows us to uh, to learn and to grow and to try to expose lies and to try to you know try to push the envelope of what we know in ways that are less constrained than what we've always done. Unfortunately. The fact that we've always done it in a particular way within a particular institutional system means that we are constrained. We absolutely are constrained, and 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 have biases. And so, I'll be the first to admit uh, that that I have, you know, I have my own viewpoints on things, and and I, I teach from a particular ideology as much as I'd like to believe that's objective. And I think I'm I'm as open. To new possibilities as 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 anybody that I know within uh, within academia, but uh, it's it's really it's really difficult not to speak from and to teach from the viewpoints that I've been raised with and that I've learned over time in the particular institution of higher education. I'm not going to apologize for that because I, I think that that leads to some really positive things. The fact that I've spent so much time in the institution uh, means that yes, I, I probably have been molded in a particular way that Chomsky wants to. Uh, wants to say can can have some bad products but it it also means that that i've i've been able to that i understand the system well enough that i can be free within the system you know to think in certain ways and so i I encourage young faculty and i i have for the last number of years uh, i've worked with young faculty working towards tenure to to think of themselves themselves as entrepreneurs I, i really think that's that's kind of what's going to um uh, to allow them to experience the type of growth and the type of impact that really—that's what they need to have. So certainly, we, you know, we can all play the game of of, of publishing and teaching to the test, and uh, you know, sort of following and living within that box. But, but really, I think there's so many faculty members that are doing such good work because they see themselves as entrepreneurs. And in, in that sense, I really, you know, that, that's a business term, right? That, that's from outside the academy. But an entrepreneur is someone who does things their own way and sets things up in the way that they think is best for a particular reason that they think is best. And I think that's good for us to think in those terms as well.
0: So I got a, a couple books here. Uh, Memories, Dreams and Ref- uh, Reflections, Carl Jung actually kind of diving deep into the subconscious, I find it interesting, ideology, symbolism, dreams, all that kind of subconscious stuff that maybe we're not even aware of. What do you think about your subconscious, maybe your subconscious biases and the things that you might not be aware of? Do you find the idea of subconscious interesting? And you know, what do you think of all of that?
1: Yeah, Carl Jung is, is someone that sort of straddles philosophy and psychology, doesn't he? And, yeah. and has, has some really interesting things to say. I, I, I definitely feel like, you know part of my life's journey has been um you know exploring who i am and 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 the answers that i've received have not always been what i thought they would be and so i've really uh, i would say you know since covid have really spent a great deal of intentional time you know living with with uh my my racial identity my gender identity um and and what that means in the academy uh you know to be a a white male and i think there's a lot of biases that come with that that i just wasn't aware of and so i i i've really loved the last few years of being introspective in that way and been guided by you know a whole new set of authors that i don't even know who they are but i'm reading them because people on my campus are reading them and are telling me hey there's there's things to there's things to learn about here um and things and ideas that I need to be open to. And it's not just me. I I think uh, that that's part of what it is to live and to live well is to be able to continually know thyself, right? And, uh, and so part of that is understanding where I fall short, or where I have blind spots. And I I hope to be able to say 10 years from now that I've continued that journey and 20 years from now that I continue that journey. So that's, that's really important to me.
0: Uh, I'm going to go rapid fire here, so I don't feel like you need to talk a lot about these questions. Um, just kind of fun philosophy questions, just random questions. Couple, couple, a few rapid fire questions, we'll, we'll call it a night. How's that sound? Perfect. Identity. Interesting. Who is Chad Carlson? Who are you? Are, ah. you, just a, are you just a brain in a vat? Maybe to, to <laughs> talk about some René Descartes type uh, you know, ph- philosophical ideas. Are you who are you? Are you the brain of that? Are you sitting here? Who is Chad Carlson?
1: Yeah, no, I'm definitely not a Cartesian. Uh, I, would say, I would say that much. <laughs> uh, you know, I just asked my, my students to consider that just today uh, a f- fascinating question. And, and, and they sort of said, Well, you're, you're a professor. And I said, Well, that's, that's too boring. I got to be more than that. And I love that I don't have just one answer to that because who I am in different contexts is different. So when I'm asking you, it might be one thing. I I feel like I'm an intellectual. We're both intellectuals here. That's why we're having this conversation. But in in other facets of my life, I feel like I'd be described first and foremost by something else. And I love that. And I hope that that continues.
0: Who, what is God? Is that even intelligible? Maybe some people would say No.
1: It very well might not be. And I want to leave space for the fact that there are only things, only certain things that we can know. And there are certain things that we might, that we would never know about a particular transcendent being that might be described uh, in different ways, depending on the particular religious um, structure that has, that has given rise to a, particular, to a particular God. So is that even knowable? I'm not sure that it is. Do I want to try to know all I can about it? Yes, I do.
0: Uh, is this the track you thought you were going to go down in life—to be a sport philosopher or a sport uh, professor—to get involved in higher education? Is this where you where you saw yourself in life? And, and yep. if not, when did when did when did you when did you choose this path, or was there an inspiration? Kind of what what brought you down this path?
1: I I would have never seen myself doing this. In fact, I told my seniors today uh, in, in a senior seminar course I'm teaching that if you had told college age Chad Carlson. That, uh, that 40-year-old Chad Carlson would be a professor. I would have gone into the future college-age Chad Carlson would have gone in the future and beat the crap out of 40-year-old Chad Carlson and said, you need to be doing something that, that's more authentic to who, who we are. Um, it's just been a slow process, and I've really come to, to enjoy it. I wanted to be a coach initially. Uh, I knew sport would be a part of my life. I didn't know you could study sport. Had I known you could study sport, I probably would have seen myself potentially in academia a little bit earlier.
0: Uh I think I like eastern philosophy western philosophy um so I'm going to maybe try to bridge the two past present future time what is it is it finite is it infinite is it relative what is time <laughs> this is the stuff I love to think about yeah this is what I like to philosophize about I love this stuff
1: the fact that so many so many western Culture and religion, specifically in the West, are are learning so much about about the presence or being in the present moment from Eastern philosophies. And, I, and I'm I'm, yeah, I'm sort it's of right now. With, Mental mindfulness,
0: yeah. it's huge right now. I think it's everywhere. huge.
1: It's huge, and it's totally being um, commodified in in the West. I'll say that, uh, especially in the world of
0: sports. We'll, we'll commodify everything. I think uh, freedom is a commodity, and if you have enough money, you can buy a lot of it
1: you can buy it. That's right. That's, that's what we do. Um, (laughs) but there's something, there's something special about, about the understanding of time, uh, the sort of ignoring the past and the future and focusing on the present that I think is really special and powerful. And, uh, is one of the, one of the goals in my life is to further explore, explore that value of being in the moment. So time, yeah, time, time distracts us. I think the, the thought of time beyond the present moment distracts us.
0: Do you have a hidden talent maybe that some of your friends and close family members might not even know? Is there a hidden talent in you somewhere?
1: I can name the <laughs> – this isn't much of a talent. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a barroom trivia trick. I can name the winner of each uh, NCAA men's basketball national championship.
0: You wrote You wrote some books here. I, I see you just published one, right, on, on basketball yeah, history?
1: Yeah, I wrote a book on that. Yeah, so that, that's a part of it. It's just been a big, big area of interest for me. Um, otherwise, I think probably what you learn about me, you wouldn't be surprised by.
0: Any more books in the works?
1: A, a few. Yep. I'm, I'm working with an, an author from Arizona State University. We're, we're co-editing a book on college sport ethics. So plenty has been written on sport ethics, but uh, uh, not nearly as much about ethics specific to college sports.
0: Where is Bigfoot hiding and why do you think he's been so difficult to track down after all these years?
1: He's definitely at the enemy college. <laughs> of my college
0: um, Beyond that. <laughs> what, what is science? What is science? Is it just a tool for us to understand reality? What is it? Can you define it?
1: Science is is one tool that we have to help us understand reality. It's not the only tool. It's one tool, and it's a tool that's done a whole lot of good and and as we learn more and more about Humanity, about our existence, science also has the potential tool, is, the, is a, a tool to potentially do a lot of harm as well.
0: Uh, do you have any influences, uh, maybe teachers or philosophers, authors, uh, any, anything, anyone you'd like to mention in terms of your influences and in terms of your, where you are today and maybe, you know, what your ideas are and your philosophies and how you think about the world?
1: my dissertation advisor uh, a guy by the name of scott Kretchmar, who uh, is is a big deal in the world of, of sport philosophy that's not what drew me to him though what drew me to him was the fact that he was a a, a global expert in a particular field who was also so humble so down to earth and and sort of practiced what he preached so it wasn't just a philosopher that was saying one thing and living another way he was he was he was preaching what he was living and uh, a guy that smart who cared that deeply about sport just gave me all the confidence in the world that I needed to be able to say, yeah, there is value in sport. Do we overconsume it? Do we focus on it too much at times? A- absolutely. We do, but it's a legitimate field of study and there are intelligent people that are studying sport. We're not all just dumb jocks.
0: <laughs> For sure. I got three more questions. I'll get you out of here. Then promote whatever you want. Um, I just mentioned uh, Mexico discovery in the Congress of Mexico. We had a UFOologist, didn't know that existed, but we have a UFOologist, an expert on extraterrestrial life and UFOs and whatnot. So do you believe this case? I guess you haven't looked into it too much. Are we alone in the universe?
1: I would say there's probably a pretty good chance if if we sort of followed what we know to its logical end, there's probably a decent chance that there is sentient life. Uh, I'm not ready to explore right now. And I, I I don't think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with the ignorance that I have with all of that. I, I don't know enough answers about, about the current, about humanity on planet earth yet to be able to even begin thinking about exploring.
0: You're not ready for a paradigm shift yet, huh?
1: (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. Great way of putting it.
0: So what happens after life when we die, what do you think happens?
1: Well, my Christian faith would, would lead me to believe that, uh, uh, that if we've taken Jesus Christ into our hearts, we we uh, rise up into heaven. Uh, that sounds much more evangelical and preachy than than what I actually believe. But I think that's the most simple way of saying what I what I do believe.
0: And a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. I always try to end with some good stuff. So, what gives you hope? Inspiration? What's the meaning of life? I always give people an easy one, a really easy one to end with. <laughs>
1: I work at a school that's called Hope, and and I I think that's a that's a value that that the world needs deeply. And you can separate it from from Christianity, absolutely. I mean, hope was the one thing that was there in a really unique way in, in Pandora's box in that ancient Greek myth. Uh, hope is 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 something that holds it all together. Hope hope has gives us the ability to, to transcend. And so, um, you know, my hope is in is in a. a our ability to, to continue to learn about ourselves and learn about our world to make it a better place. And again, that sounds pie in the sky, but that's why I do what I do. And that's why I do it at a place called hope.
0: So yeah, most guests have come on here and that's pretty much, I feel like if I piece together all these messages, it would be to leave the world a better place than you found it. And I think that's great. I love that idea. And that's simple. I like it. Uh Chad Carlson, you've been an awesome guest. Uh great conversation. We'll have to catch up again sometime. Anything you'd like to promote, where can people find you? Uh, anything you wanna anything you wanna leave on here tonight, the stage is yours. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, you can you know, you know a lot about me now. I work at Hope College, I'm a faculty member. If you want to reach out, you can find my stuff online at hope.edu. Would love to chat about any of these things. It's been so great being a host here MC or being on your show, MC Square. This is awesome.
0: All right, my friend. I I don't want to take up too much of your time. I appreciate it. I'm signing off. We'll catch up again. Have a great night. You too. Adios. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Dr. Chad Carlson, for a great discussion tonight on faith, philosophy, and education and sport i hope you enjoyed the show again i am your host mc squared i'm out